Morning, church. It's good to be here amongst the fellowship of believers this morning as we celebrate the incarnation, the coming of Christ, God taking form of a man. And today is so important to what we believe as Christians. It's the turning point of the story of man's redemption. So before we get to the Colossians text, um, I'm going to give a little bit of a, a description of our journey today. Um, much of listening to sermons is sort of having an idea of what you're listening for. And uh, since I didn't give you notes uh, to sort of see where we're going, and um, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a map of our journey because it's going to be a little bit different than normal. So here's a quick preview. Uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to um, talk about redemptive history. And redemptive history is something that, um, it's the way that God has dealt with man, how he has um, uh, planned our redemption. And so there's four main sections in redemption, redemptive history. There's creation, there's fall, there's redemption, and restoration. And uh, the creation piece is, you know, before Genesis 3, right? And that's when everything was great. And then there's fall. And the fall is essentially the rest of the Old Testament from the fall, Genesis 3, until the Christ event. And then you've got redemption, the Christ event, until the end of the Christ event or the coming again of the Christ event. And that's where we are right now. We are in the redemption section. And then the restoration is when he returns and restoration becomes when it's like, just like creation, you know, perfection again. And so redemptive history is the story of the gospel. And in terms of sin, there are three tenses of the gospel. Okay, there is the um, penalty and there's the power and there's the presence of sin. In the fall period, before the Christ event, there was penalty, power, and presence. But because of Jesus, for believers... The penalty is now gone, and now we in the, the uh, redemption section are dealing with the power of sin. We all recognize that sin still has power, but if we're saved, if we have a saving faith, then the penalty has been taken care of, and we still all have the presence of sin. When Christ comes again, there will be no more power of sin because there will be no presence of sin. So that's a good thing that we have to look forward to. So, we'll talk a little bit about where we were in redemptive history, and then we'll get to the Colossians text, and then I'll get to the main points where Paul calls Jesus God, and he calls him man, and he calls him the Redeemer. And then we'll talk about what that means for us. So, here we go. As Jerry read earlier, um, he read the beginning of the, the story of redemption. We heard about our need God created the earth and it was good. And he created man and it was very good. But man disobeyed and now he's on his own and unable to live forever. Man's work now was going to be hard. The ground was cursed and it even produced thorns if you read that. The ground is thorny. I, this isn't scriptural, but my guess is that uh, God cursed the sky as well, and that's where mosquitoes come from. They're kind, of like, they're kind of like thorns. But God did say that man would sweat in order to eat. Work would be hard. 
And most importantly, you were formed from the dust of the ground, and to the dust you shall return. Death has now entered into the equation. And death is, is passed down through this curse to Adam. But there was a promise in the middle of all that cursing. In, in Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelum, the first gospel, as, as God is cursing the serpent, he says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. And her offspring will crush your head and your offspring will bite his heel. There's always going to be strife between man and the enemy. But we all know that a head wound is much more terminal than a heel wound. And so this is where man is for thousands of years. Sinful. There's a penalty for sin. The wages of sin, the penalty for sin is death. There is a power of sin in our lives and there is a presence of sin. From Genesis to Malachi, the, the Bible just speaks of this promised seed, this coming, this, this redeemer that will come. And we get glimpses of him here and there from Abraham and Isaac to, um, to the Exodus, the judges and David. But we also are constantly reminded of the curse. Death, famine, flood, murder, exile. And so the Old Testament is this whole uh, period of state of waiting for the coming Messiah. Highly liturgical churches, churches that follow a, a, a church calendar very strictly, uh, even display this in their music selection. This morning we sang one of those Advent songs that, they, uh, that the liturgical churches sing. In the four weeks up to Christmas, they don't sing Christmas songs. They sing Advent songs. Songs that talk about Jesus coming, this state of where we are waiting for the Messiah. And we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. They're, they're waiting for the Messiah to come. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Again, another plea for God to redeem his people. And it's a way for the church to remind itself where we have been, where we are and what we're waiting for. We've all been born into sin. And God's justice needs to be satisfied. And so today, we celebrate His coming. We celebrate the turning point of redemptive history, the Christ event, the Messiah has come. And we've heard the Christmas narrative many times. Shepherds in the field abiding and behold a heavenly host in the town of David, a virgin will give birth. Wise men from the east bring gifts of value. One of them is even a funeral oil that, that foreshadows the baby's death. But my hope today is that you'll see the reason that this day is so pivotal to our faith. What is so important about this baby? So we'll go to Colossians 1 now. Colossians 1, 15 to 22. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Did you catch that all? God became man. This man is God. And both of these statements are necessary for the last point that he died for our redemption. Let's pray. God, your word is true. It is satisfying. It is complete. It is sweeter than honey from the comb. We thank you for your word and we pray that it would uh, rest in our hearts, that it would work in our hearts, and that we would constantly remember it. And Lord, I pray that... um, You use your word through us. And may the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. And the meditations of all of our hearts uplift you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So this is one of the most Christological passages of the Bible, which means that it talks a lot about who Jesus is in this small section of Scripture. And most uh, Bible scholars will tell you that this is a poem of some sort. It's very intentional about pointing out Jesus' two natures. In fact, the reason that we are in this text today is that about a month ago, Carrie and I were reading through uh, the Pauline epistles, and, and we were reading this, and I heard this, and I'm like, there's something about this text that just sticks out. And I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I was like, we're going to look at this further. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be Christmas morning's text because I found out what it was. So it's broken down into either two or four parts, depending on who you read. And you've got the top part, and that middle part is usually, you know, you could either split that in half and go like this, or you can split them apart and they'd each be there, and then there's the bottom part, okay? And so the first part, verses 15 and 16, speak of the divinity of God, the divine nature of Jesus. Jesus is God. And then 17 and 18 are transitional statements speaking first of his divinity on the first one and then his humanity in the second. And then 18b and 20 or 220 speak of Jesus' human nature, Jesus as a man. So if we look at the language that Paul uses to start both of those, the the first in the bottom section is he talks about, um, he, he uses firstborn. And by him all, or by him every. As parallel statements pointing out the role that Jesus plays, or the role that his two natures plays in him. So let's look at this poem and see what the Word of God has to say about his two natures. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator. He is God. To this point, 
in redemptive history. In this point in history, John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but He, Jesus, has made Him known. Jesus has made God known because He is God. Paul calls Him the firstborn of all creation, which evokes the question, if Jesus is God and co-eternal, how is He How is he the firstborn of creation? How is he born? But Paul immediately refutes this question with, for by him all things are created. If, if, If Jesus were not the creator, he couldn't create everything. The firstborn is not a statement of him being created. It's a statement of his standing as the heir to all things. Just like Israel is called the firstborn in the New Testament, it's it's not a statement of they were the first, but it's a statement of standing in relationship to God. So Jesus is the firstborn, the heir, and by him all things were created in heaven and earth. And if Jesus created, he wouldn't have been able, or if he, yeah, if he were created, he wouldn't have been able to create all things from the lowest piece of dirt to the highest angel in heaven. And not only does he create material objects like the dirt and the the angels, but he creates uh, the intangible like relationships, power, thrones, dominions, authorities, rulers. All things were created through him and for him. He is God. And then we get to the transition statements of 17 and 18, not so much of who he is, but what he does He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The what of God? He holds all things together. He is the intermediary from God to man, from God to all creation, really. But he also has dominion. He has authority. He has a dominion. He has control of all things. And in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of man. As man, he is a mediator to God. He's he's the head. He's the authority. He's the representative of man to God. And this is the statement where the redemptive history takes its turn. It pivots. This is the place within the poem where the story of man goes from waiting for the Messiah to actual coming of a Savior. He has a Messiah that he can see and experience. God become man. So if we look at verses 18b and 19, Jesus is man. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is fully man. Paul says that he's the firstborn from where? From the dead. God does not die. Otherwise, he's not God. He's eternal. But as we've already heard and we know from experience, man dies. Man is unable to live eternally on his, no, on his own. He returns to the dust from whence he came. So God cannot be the firstborn from the dead because he cannot die. But man can. And so Paul says that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. God dwelled in man. Jesus is man. When I was taking a class last week in 
uh, or last winter in Pauline epistles, I did something that's pretty abnormal for me is I made a suggestion to a professor. Dr. Lanier was, uh, he's a, he was new on staff uh, that semester. And uh, I, we went down and had classes with him. And he was constantly using this acronym, IDRA, I-D-R-A, Incarnation, Death, Resurrection, Ascension. And so knowing he's a, he's a, uh, a new professor, I took it upon myself and thought I might give him a suggestion for teaching in the future. And my suggestion was that IDRA wasn't enough. Because I thought there needed to be an L in there to make it ILDRA, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But he quickly and gently responded to me. Hey, Barrett, incarnation includes life. But thanks for your suggestion, and I will make sure that I make it more of a priority to teach that so that I can be more clear in the future. And so I responded to him, no, no, this is my fault. Because the only time that I think of incarnation is around Christmas. It's the only time that I, I think of that. I equate the incarnation with virgin birth, but I'm so wrong in that. Because the incarnation is the human birth and then the life of Jesus. And this is something that we should consider so much more than just at Christmas. So we have, again, Jesus in divine nature and Jesus in human nature. Holy God, holy man. And if there's any deviation from that, you're probably committing heresy of Apollinarianism or Nestorianism in the 5th century. You can look it up if you want. But we, we, we have Jesus, holy God, and Jesus, holy man. But let's look at the why. Jesus is our Redeemer. If we look at verse 20, through Him, Jesus, to reconcile to Himself, God, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The reason God became man is because of His justice, because of God's justice. He demands perfection. Eternity with God is something that he desires for us, but it's impossible for us on our own because of sin. We are born in sin. The way that man conceives children continues the line of sin. We cannot be born without sin. And that's why the virgin birth is so important because the Holy Spirit is involved. There is no sinful seed of man. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and this is where the Apostles' Creed skips over 32 years of his life. He lived a perfect and sinless life. Jesus was not born into sin like we all are, but Jesus was also able to live a perfect, sinless life like we are all unable to do. So just like Adam and the sin of Adam is passed down from generation to generation through conception, Jesus' perfection is passed to his followers, to the, his believers through faith. And he substituted his life for our life. He sub substituted our deserved death with his death. His sinless life was sufficient 
to satisfy God's justice. His death was sufficient to satisfy God's wrath. Substitution. This is what theologians call double imputation. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. We sang it. Jesus Messiah, he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. And again, we see the words firstborn and in everything. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Firstborn, he has preeminence. Firstborn, he has the priority. And then in everything, he is the representation of all of his people. He's a substitution for all of his people. He's the firstborn from the dead. God cannot die. Without him, we are dead in our sin. But we have been raised up with him. So his incarnation, God becoming man, gives his people a representation in his death. We have died with him, but we have also have representation in his resurrection and ascension. He is preeminent, the first. But we as believers get to participate in that resurrection as well because of his incarnation. Now you, just hear this, now you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him everything that we just talked about in one sentence. That is the good news of Christmas. God became man. It's the way that God planned it, the redemptive history. It had to happen this way. A virgin birth so that there is no seed, uh, seed of sin. A sinless life. A brutal death on a cross in order to satisfy God's justice. But there is a resurrection and we have been lifted from the dead because of that substitution. The penalty for sin has been satisfied. So what do we do with all this knowledge? If you know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, then work to be saved from the power of sin. We've been saved from the penalty. If you, if, if you know Jesus, if you have faith, if you've experienced his grace, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. Work to be saved from the power of sin. Live like you are looking forward to the time when the presence of sin is no more. The incarnation was just the turning point of redemptive history. It's changed from the fall to redemption. And so we are in this point of redemption. The Christ event has happened, yet it is still to come. We're in this point where we, we are saved, but the power of sin is still there, in there in us, and we know that. But we have a better view of what God meant by, he will crush your head. But it is still incomplete in our eyes because we still have that power of sin in our lives. And so we eagerly await telling everyone we know about the truth of the incarnation, the justice of God needing to be satisfied, and inviting those who don't know, inviting them to faith. Live like you've been saved. Work out your salvation. 
defeating the power of sin. But if you don't know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, and we invite you to continue to show up here, our hope is that you will hear His call on your life and that you will recognize that He has already paid. We hope that you will accept that He was born sinless, that He lived sinless, and He took your sin to give you His righteousness that you might be called one of His people. Because of Jesus' two natures, we can, be lived, we can live as redeemed people. Let's pray. God, we thank You for who You are. We thank You that we have redemption, that we have been saved by the incarnation, both the virgin birth and sinless life. We've been saved by His death, resurrection, and ascension, Lord. And we look forward to the time when we will spend eternity with You, where there is no more penalty, no more power, and no more presence of sin. God, use us to shine Your light to the world. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.